Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Ben Rausch, a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. And I'm Hannah Claude, a second-year medical student at University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the Power Podcast to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the host of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Hannah and I will discuss uterine fibroid embolization with Dr. John Littman. Dr. Littman earned his medical degree from Georgetown University School of Medicine. He did his radiology residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he did his vascular and interventional radiology fellowship at Yale. Dr. Littman is also the founder of the Atlanta Interventional Institute and Atlanta Fibroid Center. So this episode was super cool. I feel like it's something that we've never heard before in terms of how he uh, managed to create his own practice and also how passionate he is about bringing uh, IR to like a clinical realm. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I think his, his approach to interventional radiology is something I love. And I think it's similar to what we've seen before with other uh, attendings in which they had a really great mentor teach them or, or show them what clinical IR can be. And then he took those ideas and applied them in his own way to the creation of the Atlanta Interventional Institute and the Fibroid Center. Yeah, and I think it's really inspirational to see how he's been able to chase that passion for uh, patient care and implement it and completely just run with that idea and transform it into his entirely own, um, his own way. Yeah, and I think uh, talking specifically about fibroids, which he did an incredible job um, explaining, he, you, can, you can tell, you can see that passion as he talks about the disease process. And he also does a really good job of breaking things down um, in a way that's very understandable and, and uh, the and explaining his principles uh, by which he practices. Absolutely, I agree. And as someone who doesn't really know a lot about UFI, this episode has really made it clear, and I think I can probably have a really articulate conversation with somebody about it after listening to it. Absolutely. Now, here's our interview with Dr. Littman. Thank you so much, Dr. Littman, for joining us today on The Sound of IR. I uh, appreciate you having me on. It's great. So to start with, we'd like to know how you became interested in IR and what your journey was into the field. Well, um, I was doing uh, radiology, um, a lot of electives in it. I was interested in it. I liked the problem-solving aspect of it. Um, and while I was at a medical student at Georgetown, I had heard about a interventional radiologist that was doing some amazing work in this small suburban hospital um, in Virginia. And so I reached out to him and asked him if I could do an uh, elective during medical school with him. And um, he, so he, he sounded rather flattered that I um, knew about his, uh, his work. And he said, absolutely. And when I spent some time with him, it was clear that this is somebody that I wanted to be like. And so this um, early mentorship, I think, is really important. Um, and he, as it turns out, he became, I mean, he's iconic in interventional radiology. It's Barry Katzen. Oh, wow. Who's, who, I mean, so, I mean, he's just an absolute <laughs> icon. But at the time, he was, you know, working in a small suburban hospital in Virginia, just doing amazing stuff, uh, you know. And 
I got exposed to him early on and that just, I, I just, that was it. I knew what I wanted to be. And, um, and that's why mentoring is so important. And we try to mentor people as well, because to say you, we want people to go into IR. It's the coolest medical specialty there is. Um, and it's something that a lot of people don't know about. Um, and they should really check it out because it's, it's fabulous. Wow. I can't, I can't imagine picking a better mentor at the time. <laughs> uh, I was very fortunate. I say I didn't, didn't know, you know, who he yeah. was. I just heard and it was, wow. It was the light bulb went off. That's amazing. Actually his practice that, that, that was there in Alexandria, we've had uh, one of the attendings from that practice here on the podcast, Dr. Val Moody. He's one of the young attendings in what I believe at that time was what is now the, that Alexandria practice. Yeah, they've kept on the tradition, even though he is no longer there. Um, Arena Van Breda was the other person uh-huh. there, and, and she's you know an icon in her own right, one of the early pioneers and, and one of the few women in IR, and you know truly an amazing IR in her own right. Um, she's still there and has kept the tradition of just outstanding people that work there. Keith Sterling, who's kind of my age and um, is a phenomenal IR, and um, they, they've had a number of outstanding people that are have been there and still are there, and they've trained a lot of people. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you went and spent time with him, was it kind of like you saw what he was doing and you were just sold? You knew that's what you wanted to do? Uh, immediately. I mean, it just, I mean, it was so cool. I mean, you know, doing things um, with IR, you know, performing these amazing procedures all over the body and caring for people in such a way that um, you can do things without open surgery. I mean, it was, it was the coolest thing ever. And it's, it's been, say, it's, it's been great. I'm so glad I was exposed to him because, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what I would have become otherwise, probably some sort of surgical specialist, but uh, I'm glad I met and got the chance to work with Barry. That's amazing. So from there, you, you were sold. You decided to go into the training and, and become an interventional radiologist. As, as you finished your training, what decisions did you make about how you're going to practice and, and what's led you to the way your practice is set up today? Well, after training, I knew, you know, obviously I had done interventional radiology fellowship uh, and I came to Atlanta. They were looking for an IR at a very well-respected hospital in Atlanta. And so I started my journey there. Uh, And after a while of working there, um, there was something that just wasn't wasn't right. It was um, how interventional radiologist was practiced in, and unfortunately is in some places is still being practiced today is that, you know, you kind of, um, you are a, a consultant for other physicians and you kind of just, you know, wait for them to have an issue and then refer somebody to you um, versus having your own practice, your own clinic and being able to care for patients and be involved in their longitudinal care. It's kind of the difference between a proceduralist and a clinician. Mm-hmm. And I was, at the time, and that when I came out of my training, I felt that, you know, I had been trained in a clinical model. I had worked with, in my fellowship, uh, uh, with Dr. White at Yale, and he was very strong in, in clinical, having your own clinic. And, and so 
I kind of, it became kind of uh, almost uh, confrontational with my practice because I wanted a clinic and to care for patients. Yeah. And they wanted me to read films when I wasn't doing, you know, IR cases. And um, the clinic model is so important. Um, and so it, it became, after a while, even though they did agree to kind of a, a hybrid clinic, it really wasn't what I wanted. And I wasn't happy about what I was doing and where I was. And so I struck out on my own and had my own practice, my own clinic. And I, I wish I would have had the nerve, you know, several years earlier, because it, it's difficult. You're, you're comfortable, you make a decent living, you have a, you know, you're working at a well thought of hospital and all the trappings and all the comfort, but it's not how you want to practice. It's not how IR should be practiced. Mm. And I'm so glad that I, I took the jump and um, it was the second best thing I've ever done. So I'm just, I'm, you know, it, it was the right thing to do. I knew in my gut it was right, but you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, definitely. It seems too that the first IR you were exposed to with Dr. Katzen was in that model. We've had Dr. Swisschuk, who's from uh, IU Peoria, who had seen that model at Miami Vascular and emulated that in setting up his academic practice and, and their training in, uh, in Peoria. And so it seems like those that are exposed to that clinical model try and emulate that in whatever way they see fit later on. Yep, it's so important. And uh, now it's, it's more commonplace and really it's become the standard. I mean, there are some places that try to do the old way, but that's just say it's, it's, it's not how medicine should be practiced. Definitely. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like now there's more of a push towards the clinical IR. So it's not as revolutionary. It's almost a little bit expected. And I think it's a, a good move for the for the specialty. But back then, it seems like that was kind of uh, novel for the field. Oh, yeah, it's very it was very novel. In fact, I spent a, a lot of time um, talking at our national meeting, you know, the SIR Society of Interventional Radiology at their national meeting. I would be, you know, one of the speakers speaking on, you know, the importance of clinical IR, the importance of setting up a practice, you know, because uh, there's not many, even to this day, there's very few solo IRs mm -hmm. around, um, right. you know. So that kind of brings me to another question we had for you is, what is the pro of having your own solo IR practice? What are, what are some of the liberties that you can take because it is just you? Well, and it, it, it has been me for almost 14 years now, but I had the pleasure of just recently, uh, last month, hiring um, a colleague. And so I'm really excited about, you know, having her on board. And um, so I'm no that's longer awesome. solo, uh, but that's a recent development. And, uh, you know, just excited to have her uh, join me because... Uh, you know, it, it's time. It's definitely time for me to, you know, to to continue the growth of the practice and to continue doing what we're doing. And she's, I think, going to be a phenomenal addition. Uh, but uh, we're still small, obviously, and um, small has a lot of advantages. Um, you know, we can be very nimble. A lot of organizations, you know, my previous practice, we would have what I call, you know, paralysis through analysis. I mean, everybody mm -hmm. in the group, and we had a lot more diagnostic radiologists than IR, so we got outvoted every time on, on key issues, which is, again, one of the reasons why I left. But 
we would, everybody had an opinion and everybody had to have a vote. And it's like that organizations can't move forward if everybody's got to weigh in and you've got to satisfy everybody, you know? Um, and so now we can be nimble. We can address things quickly. We can move on a dime versus trying to steer a super tanker. Yeah. That's interesting. So I've heard several different IR attendings talk about that, the issues between DR and IR, but as you have become independent, how have you been able to get the patients that you want and also practice in hospitals or, or what other, whatever other ways you've set up your practice? Well, I think the most important thing is to first decide kind of what you want to do. What, what are the types of patients that, you know, give you joy? I mean, when, <laughs> when I was, uh, again, using my previous practice um, in a community IR setting, there were always patients that I really enjoyed seeing and I really thought I could really be helpful to them. And there are other types of patients I really almost loathe to see. And, you know, you don't have to be the master of everything, you know, no matter what specialty you are, you don't have to be the expert on everything and you don't have to do everything. I think that's kind of a, an older model. Um, I enjoyed seeing fibroid patients. Mm. The procedure, the UFE procedure, uterine fibroid embolization, is one of the biggest medical breakthroughs of all time. I, in terms of medical significance, I would put it up there with the mammogram and the pap smear. And wow. yet, yeah. even though I've been doing this procedure almost 25 years now, it's still relatively unknown, which is tragic because okay. I say it's such a huge breakthrough. So I decided those... I wanted to see those types of patients and built my practice around women's health and fibroid patients. And yeah. those are the types of patients I enjoy seeing. And so my practice is really niche. It's not only is it within IR, which is a subspecialty of radiology, I'm even nichier than that because <laughs> my field is just pretty much, we serve women, either conditions that are seen exclusively in women and we're most known for our work in uterine fibroids, but we also um, do uh, female infertility. We see migraine patients because migraines are primarily women, varicose vein work, and even uh, osteoporotic compression fractures, which are seen predominantly in women. So hmm. it's at least predominantly in women conditions or exclusively in women. Interesting. So what was the decision to build your own center versus continue to work out of lots of different hospitals, or do you still do both? Well, no, I've pretty much left the hospital life behind, which is a really a welcome relief. Hospitals <laughs> are, they're so inefficient, um, they're filthy, um, and they're inconvenient. You know, patients, when I worked at my previous hospital, which is very well thought of in, you know, uh, near downtown Atlanta, it was very difficult for patients to get to me. And, uh, and, one, and once they, you know, because this, this one road that led to the hospital was always congested, patients were always running late, um, and they were angry once they got there because not <laughs> only were they late, but they had to, we couldn't get the hospital to validate parking, if you can believe it. Oh, wow. And so they had to pay for parking, and they had to walk about a mile to get to my, my, where my office is on the grounds of the hospital. And so they, were, they would come late, and they'd be upset. And it, it just started, you know, kind of a negative ball rolling, if you will. 
Uh, versus now, my patients who come to see me, they pull right up to the front door. They're, it's very convenient. Um, we see them immediately. There's not this log jam of other types of people. That, yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's so nice. And then say, we, we try to make the experience as pleasant as possible. We want that Four Seasons Ritz-Carlton experience in healthcare. <laughs> which they, and patients will all the time, I mean, tell me commonly, they can't believe the experience they had. I mean, and everybody that they come in contact with in my organization, another benefit of me versus the hospital is I hire everyone Uh. versus in the hospital, there were people that were miserable. They hated their job and I could, and they were all a reflection of me. Mm-hmm. And so even though I didn't have any control over these people in the hospital, they were, you know, if they were upset and they didn't care, it was very evident. And, my pa- and the patients that come to see me thought, well, you know, wow, he works for Dr. Lippman or she works for Dr. Lippman. And they're, huh. you know, this was really bad versus now I hire people for their HQ, not their IQ. Mm. We talk about this all the time. And HQ is hospitality quotient. Yeah. It's the measure of how someone derives pleasure from pleasing other people. And so I can teach them the few things I need to teach them about their day-to-day job, but what I can't teach them is what they already have or they don't have, and that's HQ. Um, And so I control the entire operation. Everybody that comes in contact with Mm -hmm. my patients, you know, is just the best, most positive person you've ever met. It's a thrill to come to work. I love coming to work every day. Uh, we do a great job, and that positivity just just grows upon itself. The patients come in, and and they're greeted with a smiley, happy, positive person, and that just transcends the organization. Every patient has one-to-one nursing. Again, something that can never be done at a hospital. Yeah. Every patient has their own nurse throughout the entire process until they leave. Uh, it's it's a joy. You got you should come and visit. Yeah, it's interesting because I've rotated on IR. I've gone on interviews for IR and and DR. And what I've seen is often the IR suites are buried deep in the hospital. But then, you know, there's parts of radiology like mammography is usually its own separate area. It's tried to be made a little nicer. And they might have different staff and whatnot. But you'd think that that a procedure, a procedure like, you know, fibroids or uh, or something else would be given the same sort of uh, treatment or or, or formatting as, as something like mammography. Yeah, and fortunately it hasn't in the past. It's been kind of, as you say, kind of in the dungeons. That's where, <laughs> you know, IR has been done. In fact, they even called it special procedures. I always hated yep. that name. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what is specials? What is that? I mean, the, but um, so finally we're getting a face, you know, IR is finally being recognized as a specialty. In fact, yeah. um, it's timely that the uh, interview uh, you know, is is this month, January, because January 16th is National Without a Scalpel Day. Um, awesome. It's the anniversary of Charles Dodder performing the first angioplasty in Portland, Oregon, um, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Man, I just have to say, this is incredible to hear the way that you saw that there was a gap in what you thought patient care should look like and what you were seeing in front of you and you attacked it and changed it completely, turn it on its head and you have such positive results. And 
how you're talking about your patients are just in so much better moods. And there's so many studies about the power of positivity and health outcomes. And I think it's just amazing what you're doing. That's awesome. Oh, thanks. Uh, it's, as I say, I just, I love what I do. I hope I can do it for a long time. So talking about the patient population that you love treating, can you talk a little bit more about what types of patients these are and how they present um, and sort of what are the basic issues that they're coming to you for? Sure. The most common patient that will come to our practice is women that are suffering with symptomatic uterine fibroids. Fibroids are very common in women, um, particularly women of color. Up to 80% of African-American adult women have these benign tumors. And while they're benign, they can cause a lot of misery. Mm -hmm. It's the most common reason why women have heavy periods. And sometimes these women don't even know what they're doing each month is heavy, which is surprising. I mean, because they've been just been doing it for so long. Mm -hmm. They're just bleeding miserably. They, you know, blood will just explode and run down their legs and they're wearing all sorts of extra padding, extra gear, extra clothes. They may even come to my office with a bag of, you know, extra clothing. They're afraid to, you know, sleep in, you know, on certain linens or, or sit in certain chairs because it's that time of the month. Yeah. They, you know, a couple, two, three days out of the month, they may be out of commission entirely, maybe not even able to work wow. um, because of these heavy episodes. They have to know where every bathroom is. Their whole life is kind of revolved around their menstrual and it's miserable. And a number of them are anemic because as you, when you lose this kind of blood every month, you can't possibly replace the iron and hemoglobin that goes with it. Yep. And so they become tired. They're weak. Um, you know, they, get, they may get lightheaded or dizzy, migraine-like headaches. Uh, they will often chew or crave ice. When I ask them about that, they look at me like, wow, you're clairvoyant. How did you know? <laughs> you know um, but those are all signs of you know, clinical anemia, um, which we can correct very easily with UFE and give these patients their life back. So they, they come into our practice tired and weak and worn out, physically and mentally drained. And then after the UFE procedure, when I see them in follow-up, they are, uh, they're transformed. They're a new woman. We hug, we I mean, we're just, I mean, they're just thrilled. They got their life back. They're very appreciative and they want to tell everybody that they know. So some of our listeners probably know a lot about urine fibroid embolization and fibroids in general. Others don't. And so can you break down the basics of what the different types of fibroids are mm-hmm. and what are the risk factors for development? So there are essentially three areas in the uterus where fibroids are located um, there are ones that are up against the lining, the submucosal fibroids, and those are the ones that typically cause the heavy bleeding that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. There are ones that are located underneath the outer covering of the uterus. Those are called subserosal fibroids. Those are more involved in bulk-related symptoms. They press on nerves to cause pain in the pelvic region, back, buttock, even down the legs. It can mimic sciatica. Um, And the ones in between are the most common, the intramural ones, the ones that are kind of in the muscular part of the uterus. They can, depending on which way they grow, if they grow toward the cavity of the uterus, they tend to cause more bleeding symptoms like the submucosal variety. Or if they grow outwardly, they tend to cause more bulk-related symptoms like the subserosal variety. 
or they can do both. If they're big enough, they can grow in both directions and cause both. Oh, so that so those are the different types. And then if they're symptomatic enough, and it and you know you basically talk to patients about their symptoms, and then you look at their imaging. And we use uh, MRI imaging is it's the gold standard of evaluating fibroid patients. A number of them have had ultrasound, but ultrasound doesn't have the resolution necessary um, to really evaluate these patients. And I commonly see women who are misdiagnosed as having fibroids that don't have fibroids at all. They have another condition called adenomyosis, which also causes heavy bleeding and pelvic pain. And we can talk about adenomyosis um, later on, but so they'll come to me and they'll have symptoms of fibroids. And then we look at their imaging and we put it together if it makes sense. So if a woman has symptomatic fibroids and her imaging um, makes sense, you know, these fibroids are located in areas that we just mentioned that fit her symptoms, then she's a candidate for embolization. But there are some patients that, like a patient might come into me for heavy periods and heavy bleeding, but they don't have any fibroids that are anywhere near the lining. They may have some small subserosal fibroids. So she has heavy periods and she has some tiny fibroids, but it doesn't make sense. The embolization is not going to help her. We need to look further, and that's why it's so important to be a clinician, not a proceduralist, because in that kind of scenario, they're not a candidate for embolization. We would do a saline sonohistogram in the office and likely find out she has an endometrial polyp that the gynecologist can remove very simply in their office. Mm. So when these patients are coming to you, some have a diagnosis from a different doctor and some are coming to you without having any history of seeing any doctor? Well, most patients have seen a doctor, uh, whether it's a primary care physician or a gynecologist. Occasionally, somebody hasn't seen their gynecologist that has a diagnosis of fibroids, and they're what we call the silent sufferers. They mm. sit on the sidelines. There's over a million women in the United States that have a diagnosis of fibroids, have horrible symptoms, yet the only option given to them is a hysterectomy, and they don't want it, and I don't blame them, but they don't know about UFE, so they kind of suffer with the symptoms and suffer with fibroids until all of a sudden they hear about UFE and they hear about the work we're doing, and they're like, wow, what, you know, and they come in, and they're like, why haven't, why haven't we know about this? And I said, you know, you know um, we've been doing this procedure well over 20 years, almost 25 years. Unfortunately, many physicians won't tell you about it. Um, it's unfortunate, but they don't. Um, they'll only mention the surgical options. And that's why we spend a lot of time in the community educating physicians about UFE and about the, the treatment, the non-surgical treatment of fibroids. Hmm. So you mentioned these more subserosal fibroids as ones you can't treat very well. Are there other types that are difficult to treat or, or certain burdens of fibroids that make it more difficult to treat? Well, we'll treat patients that have subserosal fibroids. It's just in those patients, they're not causing heavy bleeding. They're causing bulk-related symptoms, depending. Uh, on, uh -huh. So we'll treat patients that have subserosal fibroids. Absolutely. In fact, if you've been, if you suffer with uterine fibroids and if you're told that you need surgery, almost every patient is a candidate for embolization. And that's why, again, it's wow. so important to get a second opinion, no matter what you've been told by your gynecologist. 
you need to get a second opinion from an experienced interventional radiologist that treats fibroids to see if you're a candidate for UFE. Interesting. And so what, what is the age range that you usually see in these, in these patients of yours? Well, um, patients um, will develop fibroids even in their 20s. Uh, we try as best we can not to treat patients you know, that young. We're, we're really conservative about um, treatment methods. And we can, um, we'll start with kind of um, things that we can modify behavior uh, for instance, and diet and exercise, which are really important. Um, one of the reasons why African-American women disproportionately suffer with fibroids is that in general, they have more body fat than other racial groups. If you look at uh, body fat distribution and fiber distribution, they're basically identical by race. The highest is African-American and the lowest is Asian. Now, nobody knows where fibroids come from, but once they arrive on the scene, we know they grow with hormones, particularly estrogen. Um, and estrogen is stored in fat. And the more body fat you have on you, the more stimulated you know, your fibroids are going to become, and the more likely they're going to grow rapidly and develop symptoms earlier on. And if you look um, at African-American women, you see that they get fibroids earlier in life. They get them bigger and more numerous, and they're more likely to get surgery. Um, and those patients can all be saved from surgery if they know about UFE. Hmm. So are there any sort of diagnostic studies that you guys do prior to the actual embolization to figure out maybe outcomes or how um, heavily the risk factors are impacting what could potentially be an adverse outcome? Yeah, the Im imaging we rely on is, is the MRI. I mean, while a number of these patients have had ultrasound, as I mentioned, um, the ultrasound just doesn't give you the resolution. In fact, commonly patients will say, well, I know I have two fibroids we've been following from, for them for a long time, and now they're really starting to bother me. And we do the MRI and there's 15 or 20 fibroids. Oh, wow. And they're like, well, wow. where'd they all come from? It's like, mm -hmm. well, they've always been there. It's just the ultrasound doesn't have the resolution to see them as well. And as they say, also, we'll discover patients that have adenomyosis, which um, sometimes it coexists with fibroids and sometimes it's the only diagnosis. There are no fibroids. And wow, you, if you want to see a patient's looking perplexed, it's ones that, and I've seen this fairly commonly, they come into the office with a long history of fibroid diagnosis. And then I have to tell them they have no fibroids at all. And they have this other condition um, called adenomyosis. So while we're talking about adenomyosis, is there a role for, for embolization with adenomyosis in your opinion? Absolutely, there is. Um, and it's really important because it's really, there's really only two things that work for adenomyosis. Hysterectomy works, but it's obviously very severe and extreme. And, and embolization works. It doesn't work quite as well as it does for fibroids. I mean, the success for fibroids is around 90%. The success for um, adenomyosis is more like 75%. Um, but it's getting better. Um, we're, we're refining the techniques of embolization, doing a little bit different techniques for adenomyosis and getting a little bit better success more recently. Um, but it's very important to know what you're dealing with, obviously. And patients uh, that have, um, they're thinking they have fibroids, and now you have to tell them they have this different diagnosis. Um, it's, a, it's a lengthier conversation. 
Um, and where it becomes particularly relevant is that if patients think they have fibroids, and if they have either a definite or possible desire for fertility, they're gonna be offered a myomectomy surgical procedure, which is cutting out some of the fibroids surgically and sewing the uterus back together. Well, in patients that don't have any fibroids and have adenomyosis, there is no myomectomy option. So uh -huh. women can get cut open surgically and all of a sudden the surgeon goes, uh-oh, yeah. mm -hmm. now, now what? Mm -hmm. And so there's basically two choices. Either uh, close the patient and, and wake them up and explain to them they've made a mistake mm -hmm. or there is a complication that they got into too much bleeding uh, and a hysterectomy was necessary. Uh, and I will leave it to you how that goes. Yeah, that's that's difficult. And so that, that kind of begs the question about fertility in general with both embolization and other methods. So with a myomectomy, while we're on the surgical topics, what are the chances of fertility after myomectomy and complication rates with pregnancy with myomectomy? For after myomectomy, if it's a, you know, with an average fibroid burden in a young patient, they have about a 50% chance of having a child after a myomectomy. Um, in my opinion, there's never a reason to do a second myomectomy, but I've seen lots of women that have had two and three myomectomies, some yeah. as many as five myomectomies, and wow. then they're coming to see me. Um, I think that, in my opinion, that's malpractice, but I don't think there's ever a reason to do a second myomectomy because after two myomectomies, there's very little fertility left. And clearly you have a problem with numerous fibroids that you can't address surgically now you're putting a third procedure in front of these patients. And so anyone that's ever had a myomectomy, if they ever suffer with fibroid symptoms, in my opinion, those patients should all get UFE and UFE only. Yeah, interesting. So, so how does that, how does myomectomy um, fertility outcome compare with UFE fertility? Well, they're comparable. I would say um, it's been very poorly studied because the patients in general, in the trials that have looked at it, the UFE arm of the trial, those patients tend to be older, sometimes significantly older than the myomectomy arm. And, oh, interesting. and age drops your fertility. In fact, some of the yeah. trials, I was surprised UFE did as well as it did. It came up <laughs> a little short compared to myomectomy. But when you look at the age differences, I mean, some of these trials were like seven-year average difference in age, oh, wow. which wow. really affects fertility. So absolutely, um, I think you can expect about a 60% fertility after UFE, but um, the trials that have been done to date have been really poorly done. Um, hopefully we'll get some better trials. Um, if you have a myomectomy, um, you're going to have to get a C-section. Our patients that have had UFE, the the patients that have had children afterwards, typically they're full-term and vaginal births. Wow. Um, so yeah, again, that's a huge even, difference. It's, it's really big. I mean, these patients are getting myomectomies and then getting C-sections, you know, the, the, the multiplicity of surgeries that are done. Mm -hmm. In fact, the two most common surgeries done in the United States, one is C-section, two is hysterectomy for fibroids. Jeez. Oh, wow. Um, it's a it's a multi billion dollar industry hysterectomy, um, and the average age of hysterectomy in this country is less than forty. 
Um, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of 20-year-olds, women in their 20s, have already had a hysterectomy. They didn't want it. In fact, I was speaking at Tuskegee University not long ago and met a 26-year-old who was devastated when she heard my talk on UFE. She was in tears. Oh, jeez. She sought three GYN opinions. All three said she needed hysterectomy for fibroids, and she didn't. And now, not only is she not going to have children ever, she's a, a, a different woman. She's, she goes, I, I feel like I'm an old lady. Uh, I've, I, I'm just, it's just, it's, it's wrecked my life. Uh, hormone uh, are out of whack. I, I have no libido. Uh, I, I just, I'm, I, and she was just devastated. And it's, it's just, you don't have to have that. You can, you can get the relief of symptoms from fibroids without any surgery and importantly, keep your parts. I think the importance of keeping one's uterus is really undervalued by a lot of physicians. And that's really sad. Yeah. It's a difficult story to hear of these young people uh, or, or just anyone losing uh, an organ, a vital organ of theirs that uh, they don't want to lose. You mentioned some of those side effects that happen after a hysterectomy. Yep. Well, first of all, there's the surgical complications. Yeah. Um, nicking the bowel, nicking ureter, nicking bladder. Um, we saw a relative of a patient. The, the one sister um, came in to see us uh, for a UFE after her sister uh, got a te- uh, first a temporary and then a permanent colostomy from her um, hysterectomy surgery. Um, and so it's, it was really devastating. Uh, but there are a number of surgical complications, most commonly transfusion. That's probably 30% of patients uh, have bleeding and transfusion issues. Um, and then the surgical complications, which are usually something fixable, but again, either more surgery or calling an interventional radiologist uh, to bail out uh, whatever happened, either a pelvic abscess or divert the urine with a nephrostomy or what have you. Um, so that brings up a good question of what are the side effects of having a hysterectomy on a woman that's young or, or just in general? Well, in general, there, there are a number of important functions that the uterus has besides simple childbearing. Uh, I'm always amazed at the gynecologist's um, underappreciation of the uterus, particularly female gynecologists. Um, you know, a lot of times women that are struggling with fibroids, you know, are told just have a hysterectomy, they're done having their kids, um, and you just don't need your uterus anymore. And that's just plain absurd. Um, the uterus is obviously the epicenter of a woman. It's, you know, a number of women struggle psychologically after having a hysterectomy, like a man being castrated. Mm-hmm. There's lots of sexual dysfunction after hysterectomy, and it's an embarrassing thing to talk about, but it's real and, and it's not an insignificant thing. And the average age of hysterectomy in this country is less than 40. Unbelievable. So these are young women, and I've seen way too many women lose their uterus less than 30, wow. which is tragic. I have daughters that age. So we have to be more respectful. The, the uterus is say it's important psychologically, it's important sexually. Women go through loss of libido, loss of orgasm, um, other sexual dysfunction. Um, we know the uterus is important 
for bone health. Women who have hysterectomies have a much higher incidence of bone loss, um, which again leads to osteopenia, osteoporosis, and then could end up uh, you know, with vertebral compression fractures and other mm. side effects of having significant osteoporosis. And then lastly, um, there's pretty good evidence to suggest it's important in heart health. Um, the uterus produces prostacyclin. In fact, it's one of the larger, largest producers of prostacyclin in the body, which is a very potent vasodilator. And there's this kind of balance between vasodilators um, like prostacyclin and the thromboxanes, which are more vasoconstrictors. And it's felt that women who have hysterectomies, particularly less than age 50, have a much higher incidence of atherosclerotic coronary disease, hypertension, stroke. And while that was kind of a surprising thing, what does the uterus have to do with cardiovascular health? This connection with prostacyclin is an interesting one. And if you're left in kind of relative vasoconstriction because you've lost this producer of vasodilatation, you know, maybe that does impact your cardiovascular health. So the bottom line is you just, it's just not necessary. You don't have to lose your uterus over a benign tumor. Um, we started a campaign not that long ago called Don't Lose Your You. Don't lose you are you, meaning don't lose your uterus over fibroids. And we have an, had a number of uh, people get on board with it. Cynthia Bailey from The Real Housewives, who is a patient, has been a strong advocate for the Don't Lose Your You hashtag. Uh, we uh, got the former first lady of Atlanta, Sarah Elizabeth Reed, um, who's been a very outspoken advocate for it. And um, we're trying to use the hashtags throughout our social media campaigns and trying to just raise awareness that, you know, women who are suffering with fibroids don't need to undergo hysterectomy. Um, UFE has been a real godsend and a, just a tremendous breakthrough for women. The biggest issue is that most women struggling with it don't know about it. I think that's amazing what you guys are doing. I mean, obviously in the individual lives of your patients, but in addition, the awareness that you're bringing to this procedure, like you said, most people don't even know about it. So I think it's incredible that you guys are spreading the word and really um, taking an aggressive approach into showing other people um, what you guys can do for them. I think that's great. Well, it's just gratifying to see, you know, patients that have had the UFE, you know, tell us, you know, how it's just transformed their lives. I mean, these women oftentimes are just struggling so miserably. In fact, um, these women are often anemic, they're weak, they're tired, and they're just worn out physically, mentally. And we have the solution. UFE is a tremendous option. They just don't know it exists. And, you know, we, we continue to to be amazed that even though we've been doing this procedure almost 25 years now, it's still relatively unknown. And it's a real shame because it's, it's one of the biggest medical breakthroughs for women. Yeah, I, could, I completely agree. So we've been talking a lot about UAE, but we haven't um, actually delved into the details of it. So can you tell us a little bit about the procedure, maybe step-by-step -step for our listeners who have never heard of UFE? Yep. So the procedure, uterine artery embolization or uterine fibroid embolization, it's the same procedure. Um, it's done from primarily one of two approaches, uh, either the femoral approach, which is at the top of the right leg, or 
uh, radial approach, which is usually the left wrist. It's just an entry point into the body done with local anesthetic. Um, so uh, once you've anesthetized the skin and you've entered, now you're just taking a catheter over a guide wire and traveling uh, selectively into each uterine artery. The uterine arteries branch like a tree, getting smaller and smaller branches. The fibroids are the leaves of the tree. We know what size these peripheral branches that feed all of the fibroids, we know what size they are. It's, the target is somewhere in the 500 to 700 micron size. Mm. And to give you an idea what that means, uh, a red blood cell is about seven or eight microns. So it's roughly you know, 90 to 100 times the size of a red blood cell. That's our target. And we have um, embolic material that can plug up the vessels for that size. And there are two main embolics used. Um, they're both permanent agents. Uh, one is polyvinyl alcohol, PVA. That's the one that has been used the longest. Um, and the size for PVA um, typically is 355 to 500 and then upsizing from there because we start a little smaller with PVA because PVA is kind of irregular. If you looked at PVA under the microscope, you'd see this kind of jagged irregular particles and they tend to clump. And so the effective size is actually going to be larger because it tends to aggregate. And so we'll start with 355 to 500 micron PVA. And as necessary, if we need to, we can always upsize to 500 to 710 or even 710 to 1,000 micron for the really big fibroids that are taking a lot of embolic to kind of slow down. You want to basically knock out this um, blood supply to each and every fibroid. Um, and if the other embolic that's commonly used is what's called embospheres from Merit Medical. It's it's an acrylic bead embedded in gelatin. And these are um, spheres that are um, you know, fairly tightly calibrated um, and are basically will pack like marbles in a cylinder. So mm -hmm. unlike the PVA, which is more irregular and tends to clump, these things stack like marbles and they're very uh, tightly calibrated. And so um, depending on you know, what you believe. Some people like the elegance of a more tailored spherical particle and other people um, are more traditional and use the, the standard PVA. But now there's a, an even newer uh, embolic class, the ones that are, you know, that break down over time and are not permanent. Um, and those are coming to market now. Oh, interesting. So I guess a question for you, Dr. Lidman, which embolic do you prefer? Well, I, I use uh, several different ones for several different purposes. Um, I would say the, the workhorse uh, these days has been polyvinyl alcohol for me. Mm -hmm. um, we do uh, use, um, you know, the Embosphere product as well. Um, those are what we use most commonly. And now for patients that are um, interested in fertility, either definitely or possibly, I'm using the degradable microspheres um, for those patients. Um, we don't know if that will have a positive impact on fertility. Um, huh. We have to wait and see, but that's the idea that the 
for those for that embolic, it will it will block the vessels, it will cause the fibroids to infarct and die, and then it will break down and disappear and won't leave a permanent footprint that potentially could impact in some way um, somebody's ability to um, have a child. So um, intuitively, we like the fact that these um, you know spheres break down and disappear. It's a nice aesthetically nice, but whether that translates into any real clinical benefit, we don't know at this point. Interesting. So to help our listeners that you know might not fully understand the concepts behind embolization, um, I, I guess the best way to to phrase this question would be, you know, if, if there's a student listening to this right now thinking, okay, well, all right, we're trying to embolize these fibroids. Uh, may, why wouldn't it be better to either, A, have smaller uh, embolics to get farther into the arterial system, uh, or B, do more embolics to, far, to further block this uh, system and have more infarction and have more shrinkage? Um, well, a couple, there's a couple of things in there. Um, you have to be careful because you want to selectively kill the fibroid, but you don't want to kill the uterus. Mm-hmm. So if you were to use particle sizes um, that were smaller, you would risk you know, infarcting the uterus. And unfortunately, in Europe, that was done on several occasions until they realized that they had some very bad outcomes from that. Um, and so you want to be careful. You'd say your target is 500 to 700 microns. And if you're using a, a calibrated, you know, spherical embolic, you want to be in that size range. If you're using PVA, say a little bit smaller, because it aggregates and you get an effective size range around 500, you know, or so microns, which is where you want to be. For adenomyosis, just to add that to the mix, that's where we often use a smaller particle size. We will use 250 to 355 PVA, the next lowest size. Hmm. Or if we were using um, embospheres, we would use 500 micron embospheres. Again, and for, for adenomyosis, not only we're using a slightly smaller particle size um, and not upsize, um, we also go to stasis which is we want to really shut down the flow, if you will, um, has shown to be a, a way to get a, a higher result uh, without any undue you know, side effect or complication. So is that specific to adenomyosis, that stasis? Yeah, for, that is for adenomyosis, at least in our practice it is. Uh-huh. If we're doing just fibroids alone, we won't be as aggressive as an endpoint as we are for adenomyosis. Um, we will be, it'll be a less aggressive endpoint, a very slow, choppy forward flow in the uterine artery. Some mm. people count out cardiac beats, um, uh. but you know, as long as it's a very slow, choppy forward flow, that's, you don't really, I don't think you have to count out how many beats it takes to, for the stuff to disappear. But um, for adeno, we are more aggressive, and it's really a much slower a static flow for that. Um, but you have to kind of re- remember to keep the right sizes in mind um, because you don't want to be too small because then you'll start getting, you know, um, 
infarctions of the uterus, which would be very bad, obviously. So the badness of that, is that causing more pain for these patients as well? More pain and, and permanent damage to the uterus. Yeah. Um, so you, which you don't want to do. Uh, in any patient, whether they're family complete or not, you want them, you know, you want to knock out the fibroids. Exactly. Years. So the reason I ask these questions, both for our listeners and also uh, to further this discussion, is often, you know, I, I've either seen cases on on social media that are brought up or in other forms where people are putting in a lot of embolic, you know, vials and vials and vials in, right. these, in these uterine arteries for fibroids. And, and so the way you explain it sounds a little more conservative. So what's the downside, not of downsizing embolics, but of just putting more embolics? Well, whenever I see these, and I've seen what, you talk, what you're talking about, I've seen on social media where there was someone that, you know, was proud of the fact that they put in like 26 or 27 syringes of embolic yeah. into a patient. They had them all lined up on a, you know, on a sterile towel and kind of preloaded in syringes with different colors based on the sizes. So it was a very colorful display until you realize that's a lot of embolic, um, which is permanent that you're placing inside of a patient. And so it was really kind of um, upsetting, you know, to see this. Because um, there's, it was kind of callous, and you know, you have a responsibility to the patient, and it's something that's just completely unnecessary. I've done over seven thousand UFEs. I've never had to put that many syringes in, um, and the way you avoid that, and you can still get an outstanding result. Not to mention the cost of putting in that that much embolic. Oh yeah, you start at a you know five hundred. Let's say we're using, and typically when you see these pictures, it's with uh, embospheres. So you start with 500 to 700 micron embospheres, and you might put in three syringes uh, of that maybe, and then you kind of gauge how the flow is going. And if it's a very, if it's a patient that has huge fibroids um, and the flow is still really strong, you haven't really slowed down anything yet, you upsize and you go to 700 to 900 micron embospheres, and then you might put in two more of those. So now you're at five. Mm-hmm. And then if it's still pretty strong and it doesn't seem like your endpoint's anywhere close, I go to 710 to 1,000 micron PVA, knowing that it, it's going to clump and that effective size is even greater than, you know, 700. It's, it's getting, you know, around 1,000 microns now. And you will slow down the flow and get a very nice result. You've you've knocked out the target, the 500 to 700 micron vessels with your earlier stuff. Now you're just kind of slowing it down um, to get to your endpoint quicker. And it works very, very well, this technique. And you might use at most like seven total syringes on a side at most, maybe eight. I think I've done a few eights on one side in my, you know, 7,000 plus uh, but it's it's very unusual. Most cases are, are done with either two syringes on a side, or if you're using vials of PVA, one or two vials of PVA on a side. Mm-hmm. That is a pretty typical amount. So you don't have this humongous load of embolic uh, permanently in a woman's uterus for the rest of her life. And um, it's just not necessary. It's wasteful. It costs a lot of money that doesn't have to be spent. It's just on all fronts, it's just not necessary. Mm-hmm. 
So the main takeaway is basically the better technique would be to start out small and then gradually get larger. That way you're not just pumping in a lot, a lot of small endospheres. I mean, if you have a really big fiber, you know, a patient with a really large fibroid burden and you're just using 500 to 700 micron endospheres, you can go like 20, mm-hmm. 20 25 syringes of that. I mean, that's just, just wasteful. Plus, one other thing that when, when mm-hmm. you're doing this, you have to kind of realize there are some patients that might have an arteriovenous malformation. Mm. And you better know what you're dealing with and making sure that it's fibroids right. and not a pelvic AVM because you start injecting embolic in an AVM of the pelvis, Ooh. you'll get it across the other side and have a really bad outcome. In fact, there have been you know deaths reported from that very event. So you first have to understand what you're dealing with and get, you know, very good imaging, making sure that you are dealing with fibroids or adenomyosis and not a pelvic AVM, because uh, that's the last thing you want to do is start pumping in lots of embolic uh, across the AVM. Right. So I definitely want to get back to some of the side effects in um, post-op treatment or post-op um, procedures for the UFE patients. But I do want to revisit the idea of the biodegradable beads that you were talking about before. I've never heard of that, and that sounds really interesting. Uh, so the first thing that came to my mind, though, when you when you mentioned that was, what if they break down, like, quote-unquote, too soon before right. the, the fibroids have actually necrosed? What happens right. then, and what are the other potential side effects of these new products? Well, that's, that's a great question because it's something that we've never had to think about before because in the past, when we're dealing with the permanent embolics, we're not worried about what happens to them when they break down. They stay there permanently. They're at a certain size. But now with these biodegradable spheres that start to degrade and break down, their breakdown products are smaller than, you know, the original size, and will that have any effect? What happens when these things, now you're, in a sense, getting smaller embolic. Um, will that, you know, cross to the other side? Will that, you know, what, what's the impact of these smaller temporary, but still, while they're still around, they're, they're acting like a smaller embolic. Will that have any impact on your target, whether it's the uterus or if you're using some, somewhere else? And so we've never had to think about that. And, and that's why it's taken a while for these things to kind of reach the market. And we've got to be thoughtful and make sure that there isn't going to be any kind of negative impact of using these things. That's the last thing we want to do. Um, but it has a nice feature, the, the whole idea of, a, of something working. And then once its job is done to dissolve is, I mean, that's the ideal embolic. Um, so. Um, we are using, say, one of the ones that's on the market. It's um, it's a product by Medtronic uh, that was originally a different company, Vascular Solutions, and it's been around for a while. Um, so we felt that it had a long track record, even though um, it's kind of a more recent thing. It's, it's been available for some time. We felt that that was something um, where we could kind of test out the waters here and see if this is going to be the next 
wave as we think. Interesting. So what's the thought process in choosing the type of material that you're going to inject? For us, it's, you know, what are we, what are we trying to accomplish? If we're treating um, adenomyosis, as I say, we'll use a smaller particle and we'll go to a farther, a, a sl- you know, a much uh, slower endpoint. If we're doing fibroids, it's a, you know, say a different endpoint and we're using primarily PVA. Uh, if it's somebody that's interested in fertility, um, we're using this, you know, degradable mm. product. So it, de- it really depends. Are we treating fibroids primarily or exclusively? Are we treating adenomyosis primarily or exclusively? Or is the patient a, for, you know, patient that may be interested in fertility? You know, so the different questions we're, we're trying to answer and will kind of dictate which of the embolics we like to use. Interesting. So we described the procedure and getting to stasis or getting to slowing the uh, the arterial flow um, with these embolics. I know uh, in some centers it's common to use either intraarterial lidocaine or intraarterial uh, ibuprofen or other NSAIDs either before or or during or after the embolic is given. Can you explain what sort of the thought process is with those options? Oh, sure. Uh, we use intraarterial lidocaine uh, after we're after we finished embolizing one particular side. So we're in the, we have a microcatheter in the uterine artery and we're embolizing that side's um, supply. Uh, and when we're finished embolizing and we got to the right endpoint, we will then add five cc's of one percent uh, preservative free lidocaine intraarterially when we're done with that side, and we'll do that obviously on the other side when we're finished with the second side too. Uh, so, and that's really, really important. I think it's one of the most helpful things that you can do uh, for post-procedural pain control. And it's, mm. we perform all these procedures, all of our UFEs are done in the office. Uh, and so one of the ways you can do this procedure in an office-based setting is have an adequate pain regimen. And one of the one of the most important pieces of that uh, pain regimen is intraarterial lidocaine. Now, some people, based on the experience of um, chemoembolization, would do the uh, lidocaine first before embolization or mix the particles that they were embolizing with with lidocaine and then do the embolization. And both of those techniques should not be done. and the reason being is if you do the intraarterial lidocaine first, you run into vasospasm. Uh-huh. Um, and if you mix the particles, eventually you'll get vasospasm too, maybe not right off the bat like you would if you start there. Uh, but once you have vasospasm in the uterine arteries, you've kind of destroyed your endpoint. You don't know where you are. You will absolutely underembolize this yeah. you know, particular side. And so we wait until we're finished. And then once we're finished, fine, you know, you're going to get arterial spasm. So what? I mean, it may, it'll take a little longer to get the five cc's in. You won't just, you won't be able to just straight inject it. Um, You got to take your time. You don't want to reflux it. Um, So it's a slower injection, but you will have adequately embolized somebody and not destroyed your endpoint. So that's really important. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So what about the, so I have two questions about that. One, why is it lidocaine and not a, 
anesthetic that has a longer half-life that's used? Because conceptually, you'd think, oh, those would prevent pain for a longer amount of time. Sure. I mean, I think um, there probably have been some people that have used, say, bupivacaine, which is a much longer-acting agent. Uh, I've not used bupivacaine intraarterially. Um, uh, but what intraarterial lidocaine does, um, I think it was used because of the familiarity in the other, say, with chemoembo and our familiarity with using uh, intraarterial lidocaine. It was, a, it was just an easy thing to do. We know we've used it in other areas. Um, but what, what it does do when you do it for a UFE, um, most of the pain that somebody feels um, is it, it, you know, pain will peak around kind of six to eight hours post-procedure. Uh, it starts immediately if you don't use um, lidocaine. And so, um, you know, when we first started doing this years ago, or even more recently than that, well, by the time the patient was finished the second side embo and they were on the gurney heading back to their room, the patients were already in pain. Yep. Um, you don't see that anymore because that's what the lidocaine kind of takes that first six to eight hours of the pain curve away. Uh-huh. And so, you know, the patients will have pain afterwards, but you've kind of taken that um, first six, eight hours of it away. And, and it really has totally changed the pain curve for patients. And it's been, you know, a very significant breakthrough. There are other medications that are also helpful yeah, we use uh, IV Tylenol. Um, that's been very helpful, as and a, along with a very standardized kind of pain regimen, um, with obviously narcotics and anti-inflammatory medication. The combination of which has worked really, really well. So the number of people that really have a lot of pain is dramatically reduced. We still see it occasionally, but fortunately, it's a much rarer occurrence. Um, because of these um, things that we've been able to add to the armamentarium. Yeah, you mentioned IV Tylenol. I, I've seen some UFEs where um, intra-arterial, just like the lidocaine or, or in place of the lidocaine, an NSAID is given intra-arterially. Is that pretty common or, or what are your thoughts on that? It's very common that I'm aware of, but I know that there are people using it and there are a num- more and more people that are using, you know, blocks you know, for mm-hmm. pain control and, and swear by that. And, and, I, and I've done a few of those and it does work. Um, but, uh, you know, it takes a little time and, and you, you know, there's a learning curve on the procedure. Yeah. And you want to absolutely make sure if you're doing those blocks that you're absolutely not intravascular, that can, you know, cause seizures and other problems. But yep. a, go, a good block, and if you're very facile at doing it, um, is a great way to avoid a lot of the post-procedural pain also. So if you want to, you know, there are a lot of places that are moving in that direction, um, and that's, that's great. I mean, you have to find, depending on where you're doing this procedure, whether you're doing it in the office or an outpatient lab, or, you know, you have to figure out what's your environment, what are you, what are you comfortable doing, what are, what are your capabilities, and any way that you can make it an easier, safer procedure for the patient is, is great. Yeah, definitely. It seems like, too, uh, w- with using a block, you'd have a higher overall level of lidocaine if you're also doing intra, um, intra-arterial lidocaine, right, uh, with higher risk of seizures. Well, just, just got to make sure you're not, when you're doing the block, you just can't be 
intravascular. That's you just want to make sure when you're injecting, it's not intravascular, um, and you you test it with contrast and you make sure that that you're not intravascular and that the hopefully the needle doesn't move and uh, then you can do a successful block and it works great. But we felt these other techniques um, were for us um, quicker with less less risk and downside. Definitely. So Dr. Lemon, we talked um, about the pain management intraoperatively. Can you tell us a little bit about the post-op and uh, what the typical treatment response is for the patients? Sure. Um, we give uh, patients uh, a narcotic. Uh, I like using um, oxycodone and I use plain oxycodone because I've given patients typically two doses of intravenous Tylenol um, one at the very beginning, as soon as they kind of come into the center and one as they're leaving. Um, and so I don't want to give any additional Tylenol. So why, it's why I don't use Percocet. Uh, I just use plain oxycodone. Hmm. I'll also add five days worth of prescription strength Motrin. So 800 milligrams every six hours um, for the next five days. I'll also send them home on uh, a stool softener because the narcotics are great, you know, for pain relief, but they're very powerful constipators. In fact, probably 90% of the phone calls that I'll get after the procedure is usually around day three or day four, um, patients will call with pain and they're all, when you, you know, ask if they've had a bowel movement since the procedure, they, none of them have. And it's this kind of ileus from, you know, the narcotic. Mm -hmm. And so we'll send patients home on stool softeners and try to get them to aggressively uh, push fluids at home. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, we send them home uh, with a suppository for an anti-emetic. Uh, Phenergan suppositories are also helpful. We'll have them take one of them as soon as they get home and have them put it in their rectum get it on board, even if they're not nauseous, it gets the stuff on board, which is helpful. It often makes people drowsy. And that, that first afternoon and evening is the most discomfort that a patient feels. So the more that they can sleep, the less they're feeling. Hmm. Great point. Gotcha. So what's the um, typical follow-up care for these patients? When do you see them back in the office? Well, I will speak to them every day uh, by telephone. The nurses will call every, every day until they get through, you know, the post-procedural period. Typically, it's five to seven days. Um, some people respond quicker than others, but that's a typical recovery. And then after that, I will see every patient in the office at three months. And at three months, we're hoping for two things. We're hoping, one, when we go down the list of patient symptoms, you know, the heavy bleeding, the pelvic pain, the urinary frequency, what have you, they're saying that it's at least significantly better by then, if not OMG better, <laughs> but at least significantly better. And then we're also hoping that all the fibroids are infarcted on the contrast enhanced MRI. Um, and if those two things are in place, likely, particularly if the patient is over 40, I'll never see them again. Um, and that, that's great. 
So it's a combination of asking the patient where they're at symptomatically and imaging in order to determine right. the success or lack thereof. Yeah, the, the success is based on symptoms. It's not about how much the fibroid shrinks, although that's great. Uh-huh. We always love when the fibroids shrink dramatically. It makes for great pictures, and certainly the patient is, is thrilled with that. But it's all about symptoms because if, you know, the reason for doing the procedure is to improve the patient's quality of life. It's all revolved around symptoms. And we use three months because it takes some time for that to occur. And, you know, the first period that somebody gets after the embolization is really a wild card. Mm. It can happen at any time. I tell patients you could have had a period end the day before the procedure and the next day after the procedure, you get another period. Um, Typically the first period is better but don't get discouraged if the first one isn't. The second one will be, and the third one even better still. So I'm looking for this trend of significant improvement in their menstruals and in their quality of life. And then we look at the imaging in the hopes that we'll see that all the fibroids are infarcted. Mm -hmm. Typically that's the case, but there will be patients, and this is why the UFE is not 100%, but more like 90%, there will be a small percentage of patients where they'll come in to the office and their symptoms won't be significantly improved. They won't, they're not any worse, but they can't tell they're significantly better. And then we look at the MRI for clues, like why would that be? That's unusual. That's odd. Let's look at the MRI. And, and, and those patients, you'll see, say, the dominant fibroid will still be enhancing on that contrast-enhanced MRI. We'll know then that we cut off the uterine supply, but in this case, likely they have an ovarian contributing um, to the dominant fibroid. And so if the fibroid is still alive, it still causes symptoms and the patient can't tell they're significantly better. Mm. So at that point, is there ever the idea to go back in and try and re Yes. In mm-hmm. fact, that is an option for them. Um, they can consider surgery at that point or... I'd say more likely the patient is open to getting, you know, the ovarian embolized. Now, as long as the patient is not interested in fertility, you can embolize and do an ovarian artery embolization. Um, but in somebody that is interested in fertility, that really isn't an option um, mm-hmm. for them. But fortunately, you know, this scenario is an unlikely one, and but. There are some patients that we will do a second embolization for those ovarian collaterals. Hmm. Before you mentioned uh, adenomyosis is something you can treat as well. Um, is there a difference in follow-up care for these patients with adeno, either with fibroids concomitantly or, or exclusively adenomyosis? No, the follow-up's the same. And it's a little bit harder to treat adenomyosis than fibroids, the success rate is a little bit less, although using the smaller particle size and the more aggressive endpoints, we're approaching the success of fibroids, which is great. Wow. So the more we're learning about this, the better we're getting at, at knocking out uh, adenomyosis. Um, and you know, with adenomyosis, unlike fibroids, where there are a number of different options for patients, there are really only two good options for patients with adenomyosis either embolize them or hysterectomy. Uh, They've tried other uh, progesterone-laced IUDs or other Mm. hormones that that just doesn't work. 
Um, and so patients really are with adenomyosis are stuck. I mean, fortunately, embolization is getting better and better, and it's worth doing because for the for the most part, most patients will be able to avoid hysterectomy. But uh, those are the only two choices available for adenomyosis. Interesting. So you mentioned the collateralization. Um, how often are you seeing uh, ovarian collateralization or other collateralization that you either have to treat during the procedure or in follow-up? You'll see, uh, at the time of the procedure, you'll um, see ovarian collaterals from time to time. It doesn't mean you have to embolize them, however. And so um, you will, when we do a UFE, we'll start with a pelvic run a pelvic angiogram um, with a pigtail, you know, not too far from the bifurcation. And sometimes you'll see a, an ovarian on one side or both sides. But, you know, we will obviously notice that and, and take it into consideration. Like, okay, we see, we see that she's got an ovarian there. But um, it's not until you're actually selectively into the uterines that you can you know, you really have an idea of whether it's going to matter or not. Because mm -hmm. um, a lot of people can have these ovarians, but you will embolize still through the uterines to a degree that it's completely satisfactory and everything is perfectly knocked out and you don't have to address the ovarians versus when you do a uterine embolization on one side and you know that there's, say, a big fundal fibroid on one side, you do your angio, you see, the, you see the, you know, say it's on the left side, you see this big left fundal fibroid, and then when you select the left uterine and you do your run and you start to embolize, if you don't see, you know, the blush and the embolic going up to that left fundal region, it's kind of this bare area. When you inject contrast, you opacify all these vessels from the other fibroids but you, see, you don't see the left fundal one or as, as much as you should see. So you can infer that the, the reason why it's bare and not opacifying is it's getting fed from an ovarian from above. The ovarians come off up, you know, by the kidneys um, and sometimes off a renal vessel. Um, and so at that point, when you see that it's bare and you're not filling it with embolic and, or contrast, um, we will finish that side and, and finish, you know, the, the embolization of the uterines and then swap out for the pig and put it up, you know, by the, the uh, second lumbar pedicle. That's usually where the takeoff of uh, ovarians live at L2 pedicle and then do a run and see now that you've done your uterine embo, um, are you still, you know, feeding, you know, from ovarian collaterals? And if so, then you decide, you know, to embolize either one side or occasionally both ovarians if necessary um, to get to the right endpoint. But again, that, this is not a common scenario, but we'll see the ovarians more commonly than you'll have to do anything about it because um, you can kind of reflux it a little bit into the ovarian and then the ovarian takes it out to the fibroid. Um, so you can kind of use the ovarian to kind of deliver your embolic, even though you're in the uterine artery. Oh, I see. Interesting. Because so, there's, you know, communication and you can kind of, we do like a little reflux to and fro. You kind of inject and you're watching and you see it kind of go up the ovarian a little bit and then you stop and then that ovarian flow takes it out to the 
fibroid that's being fed off ovarian branches. So even if the, there is ovarian supply, you don't necessarily have to you know, catheterize the ovarian from above and embolize it. You can kind of do the work from the uterine below. Are there any other collaterals um, that you've seen exclusively feeding uh, fibroids, like your example with the, the fundal fibroid in the ovarian? Well, you'll occasionally see, um, you know, there are some external branches that might feed a fibroid, say, in the broad ligament. Uh-huh. Uh, we'll see that. So you have to kind of, you know, you might have to inject, you know, external iliac artery branches looking for it. Um, on a very rare occasion, you'll even see branches off the IMA. Oh, wow. So that's really rare. But um, fortunately, for the most part, almost everything can be done from a bilateral uh, uterine embolization. I mean, you'll sometimes see patients that don't have uterine arteries, um, and everything comes from the ovarians. Mm. So, um, you know, you'll do, there's just no uterine to speak of, or maybe a like a little cervical vaginal branch on each side that you're not going to embolize because that's not part of the perifibroid plexus. In those cases where you see either one or both sides with a very gracile uterine vessel, you know that you're going to have to go up and look for ovarians. And, and then hopefully they're not interested in fertility and you can embolize the ovarians because uh, otherwise you'd, you'd be stuck. So one of the principles that I've seen that is important with embolization in general and with you know, understanding collaterals or arterial supply is it seems that as you embolize a structure and you get that stasis you know, in fibroids, that if you do a run afterwards, a fluoroscopic run, you might see more collaterals than you did before, but that's sort of like a super physiologic collateralization, either because of the flow uh, and also because of the, the distal embolization. In, in those situations, are you more, are, are you conservative and saying, oh, this is collaterally supplied and we need to do something versus, oh, this is just super physiologic? Well, we embolize, we want to make, make sure that we're knocking out the perifibroid vessels. Um, and then once that happens, you will often see vessels that you never saw before yeah. as there's kind of a shift um, in flow to normal myometrial collateral vessels. Um, you don't want to embolize those. Um, so if you start to see those, that's a good hint um, that you need to you know, stop your embolization. You, you've reached your endpoint. Um, so you're looking at slow forward flow in the main uterine artery, and then also for the presence of these, um, you know, normal collaterals, you don't want to embolize those. You're just inflicting more myometrial ischemia, which results in pain to the patient. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of goes back to your original principle you said of not just shoving as much embolic in there as, as possible. Correct. Interesting. Correct. So another question I wanted to ask is about IR education in general regarding fibroid treatment. And I know that in some places, the relationship between OBGYN and, um, and IR at the institution isn't as positive, I guess you could say. So the amount of fibroid embolizations that are being done is lower uh, at, some, at some training institutions. Do you think that that would put um, a resident or a trainee at a disadvantage versus, you know, once they get on the job, they'll be able to learn you know, like it is in some other, um, some other modalities or some other treatments? Well, anytime you can get the, as much experience in your training as you can, it's going to benefit you. 
if the relationship between OBGYN and IR is contentious, um, I would say um, start with the low-hanging fruit. Um, there are um, patients that gynecologists don't want to operate on um, that are suffering with fibroids. You could offer to do those. Um, there are patients that you could work together on. For instance, if a patient has multiple fibroids in their uterus um, causing symptoms, and one of which happens to be in the cavity of the uterus and happens to be bigger than, say, three and a half centimeters in size, uh -huh. you could do what's called a combined approach where you can embolize the patient first, and then two to three weeks later, the gynecologist can do the hysteroscopic removal of that one intracavitary fibroid. And so you're working together because they don't have a good solution for that patient Yeah, because there's so many fibroids and this one in the cavity, they would have to operate on the outside as well as operate on the inside. You can do two non-surgical procedures, the embolization to knock out all the fibroids. And as I say, they can come in and very easily remove hysteroscopically that one fibroid because it's infarcted. Um, they love like that. That's a really nice procedure because unlike a living fibroid, which can be challenging to remove hysteroscopically for, for some, an, a completely dead infarcted fibroid is very easy to remove. And they love like the simplicity of it. It doesn't bleed at all. Yeah, it, it, it's a surgeon's you know, thing. So, Right. So it's a nice way to kind of cooperatively tackle this patient non-surgically together. Yeah. You could also try other types of women's patient, you know, female patients that they may not be interested in treating. They may see patients that have migraines. Um, they may see patients with varicose veins and they, and they don't have anything to offer these patients, but women will come to them with these medical issues that they don't have any thing to offer them. And if they know you do, uh, that's a nice entree into women's intervention and women's health um, that we do. And um, you can then work on fibroids. If they see how good you treat their other patients, maybe they'll, you know, kind of, they will warm up to the fact of maybe they can help me with fibroids too. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I think that whole, the whole idea of practice building and even trying to attempt to do that in your training as much as possible to improve relationships is, is great. And I've seen, I've seen this work um, to a certain extent with uh, postpartum hemorrhaging, you know, with IRs that have sure. helped with those patients. And obviously, you know, that if you can save a OBs or if you can save a patient period from, uh, you know, hemorrhaging, that's great. But that, that obviously would improve a relationship as well. Definitely. And I think that we need to be thought of in that, in that scenario more often than, we are currently. In fact, yeah. uh, um, when uh, Phil Mickelson won the Masters the first time, his wife was actually saved by an IR for that very reason. Oh, and wow. they fortunately knew about IR's capabilities. But so often they, they will keep trying to go back to the OR and keep yeah. trying to pack, you know, and the patient's going down the tubes. I mean, and they just don't know that the IR could help them under this scenario. Yeah. The first postpartum hemorrhage case I saw was exactly as you just described it. And it was, it was a scary case. It was scary to go up to the OB floor and see this patient who had lost uh, over 10 units of blood, you know, and had been transfused yep. many, many more units of blood. And then you go in and you, you know, you embolize in a similar fashion uh, to a fibroid embolization and 
and you see, oh, but with gel foam, obviously, and and you see sure. this, uh, you see this marked response. It's, it's amazing. Yep. Well, great. So, um, is there anything else important for listeners to know about the care of patients with fibroids that you want to leave us with? Um, well, I think that because your audience is uh, a lot of uh, residents and medical students, um, I think the most important thing is to consider interventional radiology um, as a field of practice. I, uh, as I say, I think it's the coolest field in medicine, and a lot of programs get very little or no exposure to IR, and I think that's a real shame because um, it's a phenomenal field of medicine. It's you know cutting edge without the cutting. We're, we're in every organ system in the body. Uh, we can offer these non-surgical solutions. And, you know, we're often the go-to person now um, for, say, intracranial aneurysms, I mean, which is phenomenal. I mean, back in, you know, I trained long ago, you know, instead of having to, you know, shave a person's head and drill holes in their skull and try to, you know, put this little clip around the neck of the aneurysm yeah. intracranially, you can go up from the inside and a patient, you know, gets gets treated with GDC coils and they go, they go home, uh, you know, after a brief visit, I mean, they're, they're, um, they get a bandaid. Um, it's incredible. I mean, we're, 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 we're treating conditions all over the body non-surgically and it's a great field of study. And, um, I would encourage your listeners to, you know, give it a shot, particularly if they're medical students and they still have, you know, time in front of them where they're evaluating where their career is heading. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, this is just another great example of a treatment that can be done and, and can be approached clinically in interventional radiology that can really make a big difference in the whole medical field. So we appreciate you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're on the front lines in, you know, you mentioned critical limb ischemia and peripheral vascular disease, um, stroke, triple uh, A's, abdominal aortic aneurysms, aneurysms of all variety, intracranial, extracranial, uh, oncology. There's great work with, um, you know, a whole field of interventional oncology now. Yeah. So there's all sorts of subspecialties, um, you know, within IR like ours in women's health and fibroids. But, um, you know, you can find your niche. And I think that's, you know, how we take back medicine. I mean, so many people I, I see at medical meetings are, they're, you know, this physician burnout and they're, yeah. and they're, you know, they're just kind of fed up with how medicine is kind of where their, their career is headed. And, you know, I flip the coin and I say, you know, how do you want to practice? And you just make it happen and you can do it. I, I've done it. Um, and it's, you know, I think this um, way of practicing medicine in the outpatient arena um, and very specialized with people that have high volumes and high expertise yep. is really the way you want to be treated. And uh, I think, you know, um, we're, we're hopefully getting more people on, you know, thinking like that so that we can really um, bring medicine back to the patient and physician. I mean, that physician-patient relationship is what's been lost. And you can find your way back if you have a practice like this. You really can. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we appreciate you coming on the podcast today, Dr. Lidman. This has been a phenomenal interview. And I think our 
listeners are really going to enjoy it. So thank you. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. I, I, I thank you. Yeah, it's just been amazing hearing how you've made such an amazing clinical oriented practice and just impacting the lives of so many women. It's just been great sitting back and listening to you talk about it. So thank you so much again for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And if anyone, we, we see a number of medical students, residents. I volunteer um, in the OBGYN department at Morehouse here in Atlanta. But awesome. we've, had, we've had physicians visit. I had a physician earlier this year from Korea, uh, one from Australia. Uh, we see medical students. I had a medical student from University of Maryland a couple of weeks ago. So we see medical students, residents, physicians from all over spend the morning, spend the day with us. Uh, we're, we're happy to do it anytime. So anyone listening wants to come and see what UFE is all about, we're, we're happy to have them. We'll be sure to include your information, as we said, in the show notes. And, and thank you again, Dr. Littman. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lippman and his practice, you can find him on Twitter at Dr. Lippman one and Instagram at Dr. Underscore Lippman. The Atlanta Interventional Institute website is atlii.com. You can find these links as well in the show notes for today. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing the interventional radiology interview trail, interventional oncology, palliative care IR, and more. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. If you're a practicing IR who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time.